What's up everybody? Welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thanks for being with me here today. My name is Matt and if you like the show you can click the like or subscribe button. You can also help out the show by donating using the Patreon link in the description below. And with Patreon you get a bunch of different tiers. My personal favorite is the $3 tier because it gives you access to the Discord channel. And it's still early but I think with enough time we're going to get a nice community of biotech traders there and we can really bounce ideas off each other in real time. So that's the eventual goal. But with that, I do want to thank everybody who's donated thus far. Really appreciate the support and all the feedback I've been getting. I've been mixing up the kind of content on the channel, so I do really appreciate feedback and hearing about how people have appreciated different sorts of things that I'm doing. So with that, for today's show, I want to talk about an update from Amgen with regards to their AMG 510 KRAS mutant target. I then want to talk about an update from Cyclerion, which we heard this week. Unfortunate, but we're going to get into some of the detail there. And then I want to do kind of a follow-on talk about Hepion. And this is just to kind of give my perspective alone on the interview I did with Dr. Robert Foster, the CEO, and then kind of give my take. So with that, let's just get right into it. And the first thing I want to touch on is the Amgen news. And what we heard is they announced top-line data, phase two data, for AMG 510 in non-small cell lung cancer. The ticker symbol for Amgen is AMGN and they are trading at a $138 billion market cap, so a very large company. And to give a bit of background on this, I did a video on Marathi, who is a competing molecule, and you can check that out, I think it's episode number 73. But what they showed in their phase one, two data for non-small cell lung cancer is a 50% objective response rate, three to six patients, and a 100% disease control rate, six out of six patients. So a small cohort, but obviously some promising data here. And then we also heard that Amgen did an interim update before the update I'm gonna to give today, where they showed that seven out of 13 patients had an objective response rate, and 13 out of 13 had a disease control response rate. So 100% disease control, about 50% objective response rate. And these are only the patients in their target dose, which is 960 milligrams. I think it makes sense to compare the companies on their, their best dose or their target dose rather than the whole thing together. So what we heard, I think, a couple weeks ago is that Amgen provided an update. And this is their phase two top line data. And what we see here is in their target dose, they got an objective response rate of 35% with a disease control rate of 91.2%. So if you'll remember in my discussion with WX Capital, and check out their channel, they do a lot of good stuff. Um, I think it was Michael who mentioned that as Amgen's data set grew, the performance of the drug went down. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. They went from a 54-ish percent objective response rate down to a 35% objective response rate. Now, this is still not bad. These are heavily pre-treated patients, and they're a targeted subset of patients. So. What I wanted to do is kind of show a comparison with uh, a good group of drugs that have successfully been on the market and generated significant revenue. But before I do that, I'll just mention that the median progression-free survival was around six months with a duration of response of 10.9 months. And this is for AMG 510. But if we look at some of the previous studies that have been done, I, I picked two out of particular. One was pembrolizumab, which is a, a PD-1 target. And in their phase three data, where they looked at patients that had a tumor burden of over 50% that were PD-1 positive. And that's important because 
with AMG 510, they're targeting specifically KRAS mutants, this G12C mutant. So I think it makes sense to compare this to other data where they looked specifically at their target population. And what they saw in a heavily pretreated group was a 44% objective response rate and 10.3 month survival in the Pembro group compared to a chemotherapy group that saw a 27.8% objective response rate and a six month progression free survival. So what we see here is uh, Pembro obviously did a lot better than AMG 510, but as we're sort of segmenting into more distinct categories of treatment, I think it's difficult to expect that we're gonna get the exact same objective response rate every time for each treatment. So uh, the other trial I wanted to look at is this Checkmate 9LA phase three trial, and interim data that was presented pretty recently with nivolumab as well as ipilimumab, plus a chemotherapy versus just chemotherapy alone. And so this is a PD-1 target as well as I believe a CTLA-4 target. And what they found was that the treatment group, the NIV, IPI, chemo group, saw an objective response rate of 38% with 6.7 months progression-free survival compared to just chemotherapy that saw 25% objective response rate and five months of progression-free survival. So if we compare that kind of data with what we're seeing with Amgen today, I think there's definitely a road to approval if that was the concern, and I don't think it was. The chemotherapy or control group in general seems to show around a 25% objective response rate, and AMG 510 is higher than that. So all of that is to say that I think that the sort of reduced, we'll say, efficacy of AMG 510, I don't think is going to be a hurdle for them to get approval. When it comes to comparing Marathi to Amgen, I think there's some interesting things we need to note here. One is that I think it should be expected that Marathi is not going to continue to see a 50% objective response rate. With a larger patient population, I imagine it'll slowly get closer to Amgen's ORR. Now, I don't think that's necessarily a problem. When it comes to what we can expect in the stock, it's seriously run up from when I did my original video at WX Capital and even my take on it at episode number 73. I think they're trading now at around an $8 billion market cap and I took a position maybe in the $6, $7 billion market cap area. So I still think that there is upside if they're able to see comparable data or better data to Amgen. If it comes in worse than Amgen, I do think there's a lot of downside for the stock. But what I'm gonna do, and what I was hoping to do, is kind of add on dips from my position, but we haven't seen any dips, which is pretty hilarious to me. So I'm gonna probably hold it all through the data. I might sell a few shares, but I only really have five shares. So it's kind of a joke right now and uh, more of a fun position than anything. I think that's kind of where we stand with the KRAS inhibitors. So yeah, it's, it's nice to see good data from Amgen and hopefully Marathi can be competitive in this when they give their presentation on October 24th and 25th. So we'll keep an eye out for that. With that, I wanna move on to Cyclerion Therapeutics, ticker symbol CYCN, and they are unfortunately now trading at a price of $2.95 with a, about a market cap of $100 million. Their Q2 2020 loss, and I went over this in my video on Cyclerion, was around 20 million. Their current assets right now sit around 60, with current liabilities at $15.6 million. And what they were hoping to do is target guanylate cyclase in order to treat sickle cell disease as well as broadly neurological diseases. And I did mention that they had two failed uh, phase two trials previously. 
they looked at diabetic nephropathy as well as heart failure. And their guanylate cyclase uh, target was not able to affect these two diseases. So that was part of the risk going into this. And just to give an update on what they told us, on October 14th, they announced that there was a failure, basically, in sickle cell disease. They said that it wasn't an outright failure, but that the data they had did not warrant continuation of this indication. Effectively, it means that it's a failure. So all the potential market pricing of this company for that 100,000 uh, patient population is now gone. It also kind of reduces the confidence in the company. This is now their third phase two failure. Whether it's the actual pathway itself or the management, it doesn't really matter. It just reduces confidence in the company. And, you know, this sort of plays into the idea that Cyclerion just isn't able to get the job done. Now, the data that they did show that was positive, and I write here mixed because it was mixed, is their neurological function data. And the way they released this is in two press releases right back to back. And from a strategic standpoint, it doesn't really make sense why they did this. If they were going to spin the neurological data as positive, they should have delayed or released that first and then released the sickle cell disease failure. So it's a little bit strange that they just rushed to put it out all at the same time. And this was late. They were supposed to do this by the end of Q3. So that's kind of an annoying thing about the management decisions there. But when it comes to the neurological function, um, they saw positive effects in the quantitative electroencephalogram and specifically in the alpha waves. And I'll talk about that in a second. They also saw a positive effect in event-related potential, which is a similar technique to the QEEG, but there's an event going on. And then they also mentioned that they saw positive effects in saccadic eye movement, which is a behavioral study that they looked at. Now, in their original press release, or the original corporate presentation, they mentioned that they were going to look at blood flow, bioenergetics, as well as neuroinflammation. And unfortunately, they saw no effect on blood flow, no effect on bioenergetics, and we're still pending to see the neuroinflammation data. So I call this press release mixed because they really didn't see an effect in a lot of their output, and they're showing us the only things that they did see any positive effect in. So you gotta be mindful that when the company's giving a presentation of data, and if they're only showing select data, it means that the other stuff didn't really have an effect. So this is one kind of thing that I'm a little curious about. Also to mention here that the neuroinflammation data has not come out. So seemingly we're gonna see that maybe in the Q3 earnings report or maybe later in the quarter, but if they don't mention neuroinflammation, again, we're just gonna have to assume that there was no difference. But the blood flow thing kind of bothers me because the original mechanism of the soluble guanylate cyclase was to have an effect on this nitric oxide pathway. And with that nitric oxide pathway, we should expect a difference in blood flow. So from the outset, I'm already kind of concerned that in their specific molecule to treat neurologic diseases, they're not seeing an effect of the drug, which you would expect on blood flow. So all of that set aside, let's get into the data that they actually saw that was positive. And the first one is this quantitative electroencephalogram. And what this technique does is measures electrical activity in the form of brain waves. Or just to give a caveat, I'm not a neurologist by any capacity. I kind of learned some of this as I was glancing at Wikipedia, so I'm coming at this as sort of fresh eyes. But basically, they attach electrodes to your brain or your scalp if, if they want to do it that way. And they can measure different waves, and each different set of waves are associated with different sorts of function. So the delta waves are associated with deep sleep, theta waves, waking, falling asleep, 
the alpha waves though are probably the most important because these ones seem to show the biggest effect in patients that are aging or have neurologic diseases. There's also beta and gamma waves, but I'm not going to talk about those. So the few papers that I looked at actually saw that alpha waves tend to decrease in patients that have Alzheimer's disease. So for this reason, for Cyclerion, I mentioned that there is a difference in alpha waves in patients taking their drug. It is kind of encouraging. So before I actually get to Cyclerion's data, here's the data that I found, and there's a few other studies that corroborate this. But what we're looking at is different parts of the brain, central, frontal, parietal, occipital, etc. And then they've broken down the individual waves between normal old patients as well as patients with Alzheimer's disease. And what we see in most regions of the brain, and here's the link to the study if you want to check it out yourself, we see that in most regions of the brain there is a decrease in alpha-1 waves in the Alzheimer's disease patients compared to the normal old patients. And this decrease varies depending on the part of the brain. I think what we see here with the stars, which is significantly different, we see maybe a 10% decrease, maybe 15% decrease in the Alzheimer's disease patients. And then in the parietal lobe or the central, we see a decrease of up to say like 40%. So there can be quite a profound impact on alpha waves in Alzheimer's disease patients compared to normal. What Cyclerion showed us is that IW6463, which is their soluble guanolate cyclase that can penetrate the blood-brain barrier and hopefully affect the brain, we saw that there was a significant increase in alpha power with patients taking this drug compared to placebo, as well as compared to baseline. So that's an important caveat to mention here. So they showed this nice figure here where we see there's not an effect in the placebo, but we see a really profound red effect in the brains of patients taking the drug. If we combine all of that data together and look at it quantitatively, the increase in the IW6463 group was about 17%. And we can see here, you know, the error bars are kind of high. This trial wasn't a huge number of patients. And I should have mentioned this before, but they did mention that COVID had an effect on their ability to collect data. So this isn't the full data set that we would have liked to see. So given that, we have to take all of this with a grain of salt. But what we do see here, a 17% treatment effect in old patients in terms of alpha power increases. And then one thing that I'm a little discouraged by is when you look at comparing the IW6463 group and the placebo, we see that the IW6463 group, only 13 out of 18 participants showed an increase in alpha power. And in the placebo group, we saw 5 out of 18 patients show an increase in alpha power. So for me, it's a little concerning that if we take the decrease of that, that's 8 patients out of 18 that actually ended up seeing an effect from this drug. So while I think it's nice to see that the aggregate is an improvement in alpha power, if we expand this to a larger patient population, I'm not sure the treatment effect is going to be that dramatic. So for that reason, I'm a little bit cautious about this data, but it is overall, I would say, a check in the, in the proper box here. The second piece of data they told us about was event-related potential. And this is a similar technique to the QEEG. The difference, though, is that there's an event that goes on for the patient, and they have to click a button when they see some kind of deviation. So uh, in this specific case, the patients had to have headphones on, and they had a button in their hand, and they listened to tones that were consistent. And then every so often, they would put a deviant tone. And when they heard that deviant tone, they were supposed to click a button. 
And so this represents the kind of output that you see from that experiment, where when they hear the deviant tone, the amplitude changes are different than if it was just a standard tone. So that's what the scientists are measuring here. We've seen that the P300 and N200, these are just the ways of distinguishing the different peaks that are observed under this technique. In Alzheimer's disease, both the N200 and the P300 are altered in these patients. So what Cyclerion did is they looked at both of these to see whether or not their drug, IW6463, had an effect. And what we saw is that there was an effect on the N200 latency. And I didn't talk about this, but latency is the time at which they see the peak. And then the amplitude is the magnitude of response, we'll say. So what they ended up seeing is an effect on N200 latency with no mention of P300. So from the outset, we're kind of left with only a partial effect when it comes to event-related potential. But I think there might be something here. So this graph kind of nicely outlines how the effect was more dramatic in older patients than it was in younger patients. And then when we look at the actual data itself, the change from baseline ended up being around, I'd say, negative 0.3, maybe 0.4% from baseline, which doesn't seem like a very big effect, but when they break it down based on age, the 70 and older patients actually seem to have a profound effect here. The younger than 70, I don't think would necessarily benefit from this drug, but definitely the 70 and older, it seems like there's something here. The change from baseline in terms of the delta of milliseconds of latency was around negative 1.4, negative 1.3, we'll say. And in some of the papers that I found talking about N200 latency, the standard mean difference between control and Alzheimer's patients was around 0.8. So if we compare 0.8 to around 1.3, it seems like IW6463 is having a very profound effect here compared to the difference that you see between old and Alzheimer's patients with regards to N200 latency. So I hope that makes sense. This is just one meta-study that they looked at showing the comparison between normal patients and Alzheimer's patients. But if in fact Cycleron can reproduce this data in a larger cohort, I think they might have something here. But again, the caveat is that they only saw a difference in N200 latency, not necessarily a difference in P300. So we have to take this as kind of a grain of salt, but I think amongst all the data they showed, the effect on N200 latency was the most profound. The final piece of data I want to go over is the saccadic eye movement data that they showed. And here again, they're looking at latency and amplitude of these saccadic eye movements. I don't think the data is that impressive, and here's why. First off, just from a presentation complaint I have, they put the placebo on the right here as opposed to the left in the other ones. I don't know why they decided to switch that here, but that's just a technical issue I had. Um, for the actual data itself, we see here that the difference in mean change from baseline and saccadic reaction time was by 0.01 in the placebo, we'll say, negative 0.01, to around negative 0.015. And now the p-value they show here is 0.02, which technically is statistically significant. But if you look at all the little dots here, these are each individual patient here. And if you look at the placebo, there's just a huge range in effect. In the treatment group, it was a little more uh, contained, but to me, this does not look like the significance behind this has any merit. There's just too much variability in the data. And this really just suggests to me that they need a larger patient population to confirm this, or they need new people to conduct the test. Because to see the placebo group go from some patients of 0.03 all the way to negative 0.05, 
almost, just makes it seem like there's not really any meaningful conclusion we can make from this data. And if we look at the mean change from baseline and saccadic peak velocity, this data is even worse. We have changes in placebo from in the negatives all the way to about 100. They didn't even mention here that the change was significantly different, but for me there's no meaningful conclusion we can generate from this. So I'm really kind of surprised they actually showed the saccadic eye movement data because it's so variable that to me it just makes it seem like there's no difference between placebo and treatment. And for that reason I'm kind of concerned about Cyclerion moving forward. If this is sort of the best data that they can present to us, I think that they're going to definitely struggle to see any changes in their patient populations in phase two. So to wrap up this part, I just want to mention that the company is going to be looking at two different indications. One for MELAS, which is a mitochondria, it's a very mixed, complicated disease. And then they're also looking at Alzheimer's disease with vascular pathology. I think the most exciting part that they could possibly present good data for is Alzheimer's disease with vascular pathology. And they're looking at MELAS, but I don't really understand the rationale behind that. The purpose of guanylate cyclase in the brain, to me, there's two. One is that it could have an effect on blood flow through the nitric oxide pathway, and the other effect could be through increasing nitric oxide signaling, which seemingly could have an effect on the neurons or the cells in the brain that are actually involved in signaling. So MELAS, I, I don't really understand how there's a connection between the potential effect of guanylate cyclase and this disease, not to mention that it's a very rare disease, so the patient population isn't that big. Not to say they shouldn't try, but it just seems to me that the, there's a real disconnect between the alignment of the rationale of how the drug works and how it could help in one of these neurologic diseases. For Alzheimer's disease with vascular pathology, I think there definitely could be an effect of IW6463 on this indication, and this is a huge patient population. So for me, I'd be more excited about this readout than the MELAS, but I gotta say, they're focusing on those with a vascular pathology. So for me, it makes it seem like they would want to see effects on the blood vasculature of the brain in order to see some kind of outcome in this patient population. But what we're seeing and what they've told us is that IW6463 has no effect on blood flow. So this just solidifies a misalignment in the rationale of what the drug does and how they're picking indications. Now there could be an effect due to the other effects that they've seen, Maybe the latency in N200 could be enough to show an effect in Alzheimer's disease, but my sense is that they're likely not going to see an effect in either of these. So what I think is going to happen is that the stock's going to trade around cash until a raise likely comes, and like I mentioned before, they're probably going to see need to raise money in early 2021, or I think the stock might get a bit of a boost when they're approaching data release, which isn't probably going to happen until mid-2021, and it's going to be for that MELAS indication. They haven't even started the Alzheimer's disease trial yet. So what I'm thinking of doing is holding until their Q3 earnings report to see if they clarify a timeline or add more data for the neuroinflammation. Maybe if they see a lot of neuroinflammation improvements, that might suggest that there's a better impact on the brain. But for me, I just don't think there's enough there there. And I'm going to look to sell at some point and hopefully salvage some of the cash from this position. So that's Cyclerion. Not the best uh, outcome we could have hoped for, but I thought the risk reward was in my favor. And like I mentioned, I think before, I thought if there were failures, we might see in the twos, and that is what happened. So at least I was correct in my prediction, but I was hoping for some successes here. So it's too bad, but let's quickly move on to Hepion, ticker symbol H-E-P-A.
and they closed on Friday the 16th at $3.42 a share, giving them a market cap of $30.8 million. Their Q2 2020 loss was around $5 million, and their current assets sit at $18.2 million, with total current liabilities at $2.6 million. And what this company is doing, if you haven't seen the interview with me and Dr. Foster, definitely check that out. It was the last episode I did. Uh, they're targeting cyclophilins for the treatment of NASH as well as COVID-19. The COVID-19 indication is a newer one for the company, and they previously were focused on NASH, even though the company's been a little bit slow, I would say, to get into the clinic. But overall, my impression of the interview with Dr. Foster, I thought he was very forthright and honest. He seems like more of a scientist than maybe like a typical CEO. Uh, and for that reason, I actually put more stock into what he says, because he knows the science, and he's actually been part of Orenia that was able to see successful phase three data with Viclosporin, which is an offset, and I, I didn't really talk about that company very much, but if you look at their successes in the past, a lot of that is due to Dr. Foster. So let's talk about the data from Hepion specifically. And their drug molecule is called CRV431, and this is a broad cyclophilin inhibitor. So there's lots of different isoforms of cyclophilins. Check out the video. Robert talks about that in greater detail. And what the goal here and what they've shown so far is preclinical data to support a role in cyclophilin inhibition preventing fibrosis, specifically in the liver. Now, unfortunately, they only have this data to go off of, which is a phase one single ascending dose trial. And I'm just going to show the most relevant data, in my opinion, which is a PK study where they show that at different doses, they were able to see a nice dose response curve in terms of how the drug circulates in the blood. So this is good to see. They saw very minimal side effects, no serious adverse events, and most of them were just mild and moderate, which were unrelated to the drug. They also saw nothing in grade three or grade four, which is a, a benefit as well. Now, unfortunately, this is really all we have to go on. So what Robert and I were left talking about is sort of the potential of this drug. Also talking about how fibrosis is such a tough part of the NASH equation that if we can target that, there might be a benefit over the other molecules that tend to target the fatty liver disease specifically. So with that, here's what we're looking to expect. Phase 1b, multiple ascending dose, as well as phase 2a data. And what Robert mentioned is that the phase 1b, multiple ascending dose study has finished and that we should see these results any day now. The phase 2a ambition trial is a single-blinded placebo-controlled study, so we're actually going to see some efficacy here. And they're evaluating biomarkers of fibrosis, not really focused on liver fat, which I think makes sense given that the uh, proof of concept that they want to see here is that fibrosis is actually being affected with their molecule that they think affects fibrosis. So it makes sense. Their patient population is F2, F3 NASH, and they mentioned that they're only presumed NASH. So what this tells me is they're not necessarily biopsy confirmed, but they have other readouts to suggest that they are F2 or F3 NASH. So it's not ideal in the sense that they're not biopsy confirmed, but it's better than just NAFLD patients that we've seen in, say, Viking Therapeutics' trial, their phase 2A trial. And what they're doing is they're treating patients over 28 days with a 75 milligram dose, and they recently added the 225 milligram dose, which I think is a really good thing, given that they have data to support technically up to 300 milligrams per day dosing. So to just stick with the lowest end dose, makes it seem like you know, you're not likely to see efficacy. So I'm glad that they're looking for a dose response when it comes to the effects here. 
up to 225 milligrams. But what Robert mentioned is that we're likely to see the first cohort of patient data come out in Q4 2020, and that would be the 75 milligram dose. Whether or not that's going to be efficacious, it remains to be seen. I think there's more likely to see an efficacy effect in the higher dose, and that won't come until the early part of 2021, I believe. So here's my plan for Hepion. I'm going to consider a small position in late Q4 2020, maybe 1% to 2% of my portfolio. So very small. I'm not looking to blow this up because, like I mentioned, this is very early data, and every company that doesn't really have any efficacy data should be considered a very high-risk position. I don't predict that the phase 1B multiple ascending dose data is necessarily going to be a big stock mover. I think that it should reflect the single ascending dose study and in terms of safety as well as pharmacokinetics. And if it doesn't, there's obviously going to be big downside there. But I think that it will. And so what I'm going to do is add my position after the phase 1B data. And then in anticipation of the phase 2A data, the 75 milligram dose, if the data is positive, then, you know, I'm just going to ride this out until we see the 225 milligram dose and look to exit after that. If the 75 milligram dose is negative, I'm going to double down on my position to make it 2 to 4% of my portfolio in anticipation of seeing an effect at, say, 225 milligram dose. And the reason for this is that the company's only trading at 30 million bucks right now. And we know that companies like 89Bio or even Viking, they're trading at hundreds of millions right now. So this could potentially be a 10x return if they see some positive data in the phase two study. So for that reason, I think the risk reward is in favor of going long on the stock. So if they do see some positive data in either late Q4, or early Q1 2021, the downside, I think it's going to trade at cash, but the upside is that it could be hundreds of millions in market cap. So that's kind of my plan for Hepion, and I do thank Robert for joining me on the show. It was nice to talk to him and get a little more insight into his company, Hepion. All right, so that's what I got for the show today. For the next few weeks, we're going to expect the Marathi data. I'm looking forward to seeing that. And we're still waiting for some Q4 updates from a lot of big players that I'm holding positions in. BTAI, ATNM, AXGT, TGTX, and KPTI are all going to be seeing some updates soon. So keep your eyes out for that. In terms of sort of global macro, uh, one of the things I'm particularly watching for is the stimulus package, and it looks like we're not going to see that before the election. And it hasn't really slowed down the XBI. I think we hit all-time highs last week, and most of that was probably due to the bullishness of the M&A activity. So I forget what the I think it was Myocardia that was recently acquired by BMS, and that kind of positive bullish outlook uh, really does well for the XBI. So hopefully we can continue to see that and that there's not going to be too much of a downside if the stimulus package happens to be delayed for a significant period of time. It will get passed, but it's just a matter of when that's going to happen. To give a quick portfolio wrap up, I made no moves in my portfolio. We are sitting at 4.2% for the year, which is a nice bump up from negative 0.5. So glad to finally be in the red. And most of that is due to an increase in Madrigal, TGTX, uh, Trill bounced quite nicely, as well as Catalyst Bio. And I don't really know what's going on with them. The press release was really about them getting awarded patents, and I never really thought that their patent portfolio or their IP was in jeopardy. So I'm going to keep an eye out on them in the next little while and see what's going on. And then, of course, my Cyclerion position, which is negative 62%, which you love to see. 
So in terms of comparisons to other indices, I'm catching up to the SPX 500, which you love to see. And yeah, like I mentioned, I do think that Q4 for me is going to be big, given that there's so many readouts coming up. So with that, I want to thank everybody. Go check out patreon.com slash breakingbiotech and look to subscribe for the $3 tier where you can get access to the Discord channel. It's going to be a lot of fun, and I'm on there pretty much every day. So yeah, with that, I'm going to wrap it up. But thanks again, everybody, and we'll see you next time.